we have spent some time considering the most wonderful message of the Bible, namely God's loving kindness and mercy. And we're in process of considering the question, what do we know about limitations imposed upon the exercise of God's loving kindness and mercy from the Bible? Some things that man considers as limitations have been overcome by the abounding love and kindness of God. Other problems still face God in the righteous exercise of his mercy. And we were in process of considering this remark. If the basic problem in the free pardon of sin is not an inner vindictiveness in the nature of the Godhead, independent of the relationship that is sustained to moral creatures, exactly what then are the problems that exist to such measures of mercy? And what kind of an event needs to be brought to pass to satisfy these requirements? It was affirmed that there was a threefold imperative. First, that some great tremendous measure must be substituted in the moral government of God that would accomplish the same function as the punishment of sinners would do. God has declared that the soul that sinneth it shall die, and now he is in process of offering that the soul that sinneth it may under certain conditions live. Certainly this reversal of affairs in God's great and wonderful moral government must have some substituting measure to uphold the government of God. If punishment of sin is to be dispensed with, something must be brought to pass that shall equally at least uphold the righteousness of God in all his functions as a moral governor. Some obstacle to the commission of sin must be put before all if God is to exercise righteously his mercy. And then we saw also that the moral character of the ruler and dispenser of justice must be properly comprehended, that God is subject to being misinterpreted in his change of mind towards sinners. As we affirmed, God had pronounced eternal doom upon all who are so foolish as to rebel against his great and kind and loving dispensations. He cannot now certainly reverse himself without something having to be brought into existence to tell forth exactly to the world how he feels concerning sin. And so some great tremendous measure in the second place must take place to reveal God's inner attitude toward the whole matter of sin. But in the third place, there is also a necessity that the inflated heart of man must be dealt with and properly humbled. It is easy to see how this distorted condition has arisen. Before the cloud of sin was entered into, man led before God, his great benefactor, in a perfectly natural and unpretentious life. The great God was recognized for who he was. There was no question as to absolute authority, no question as to God's character and word. God was good and did all things in a perfection of love. 
Man was not ashamed before his loving Creator. He had nothing to hide, and thus was perfectly willing to be what he was, and had no desire to be treated by any false standard. But unbelievably and tragically enough, a state of rebellion against God and his loving will was entered into by man. Man lost his moral beauty and contentment and became ashamed before God and before his fellow men. He no longer had any pleasure of conscience in what he was and thus entered into a state of pretense which the scripture calls pride. He not only pretends to be someone different than he is before God and others, but first of all, he pretends to be something different than he is to himself in the very recesses of the soul. Any endeavor on the part of God and true Christians to dislodge him from this false standard is violently resisted and holds down the truth in unrighteousness, as we read in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The truth is showing itself forth from every angle, and man is having great difficulty in maintaining his complacency in his false estimation of his own character. Only some great measure can succeed in humbling man, but thoroughly humbled he must certainly be if the penalty of sin is to be set aside and man not take advantage against God when the fear of doom is relieved. Unless so humbled, man's false pride will become worse than ever. God's unalterable law that he giveth grace to the humble and only to the humble must always stand. Thus, a third great necessity of any wise program of mercy must be the utter prostration of man's proud heart or the deflation of his pride and arrogance. Man must be man and allow God to be God, and happily so. No other state of affairs could certainly exist, and thus any measure of mercy must consider all these functions in all these relations. In view of these great requirements of any measure of mercy, we are now prepared to make some observations as to some of the expected characteristics of so great a dispensation of mercy. First, it must certainly be an unlovely event, for it must have the same sobering effect upon the moral world as the eternal punishment of sinners would have. Sin is an exceedingly unlovely and tragic event. Thus, his antidote must likewise be. How profound as we ponder the sobering effect of the fear that man has concerning his being called to account for his sins. He knows this inherently. And thus, it is a great cloud that slows down the indulgence of sin. Certainly, if sin is to be pardoned, something must be done of a similar nature to slow down man's rebellion and to humble him. Secondly, it must be an event of great dignity and distinction, for it represents the dealings of God with man. It must not only be considered so by God, 
it must also be so recognized by man. Thirdly, it must be an event of universal application. For God is long-suffering to usward, we read in 2 Peter 3, 9, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, it is affirmed in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Further, as Peter perceived, God is no respecter of persons. A number of times in the New Testament, here quoting from Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Thus whatever God makes possible, he will certainly make possible equally for all. He can have no selected favorites as long as he is love or universal benevolence. But fourthly, it must also be an event marked by a simplicity of application. The application of the remedy must be within the reach of all, or it will certainly fail of God's intended purpose toward all. With these considerations, we are prepared to advance, to ponder what God has done to redeem man back to himself. God's measures are so wonderful and profound that the prophets have inquired and searched diligently and foretold the glories of salvation to be offered without partiality to all. Thus, in the tenth place, we inquire briefly what measures God has resolved upon to fulfill these great requirements and satisfy all the problems that arise in the free pardon of sin in a moral system. First, we might read uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, which fulfills the requirement that whatever remedy is to be taken must be of an unlovely character so as to assume the same proportions and perform the same functions as the punishment of sinners would do. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. So God has declared that there must be the unlovely shedding of blood if man is to be saved and have the remedy of God's mercy applied to him. In the 17th chapter of Leviticus, in verse 11, we read, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul, or it is the blood that maketh an atonement by reason of the life. And so whatever God is going to bring to pass must be the sacrifice of a life in all its unlovely characteristics so that all the functions of the great atonement might be accomplished. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, we read concerning the dignity of the atonement. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so the great and glorious personage of the Son of God was to enter our sphere and die for the sins of the whole world. Again in John 10, 17 and 18, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. 
This commandment have I received of my Father. So the atonement of Jesus Christ was a great and profound event of dignity and fulfills all the requirements. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, we read of the third requirement, that the atonement of Jesus Christ was rendered for all men. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And again in 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thus the universality of the blessed atonement for all men. But is this glorious event within the reach of all men, we ask? And thus the apostle Paul was sent forth to declare that men could be saved by repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 20 and verse 21. And in that great familiar passage in the third chapter of John's Gospel and verse 16, we read these blessed, blessed words. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the great application is simple enough so that all may avail themselves of it. May we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for this invitation of mercy that sinners may repent of sin, exercise faith in the great and glorious Lord Jesus Christ who tasted death for the sins of the whole world. We pray that many may thus respond this day and gladden thy heart and rejoice in the salvation of their own souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.